today. Our guest speaker is Reverend Kusala Bhikshu. And Dr. Excuse me, Reverend Kusala, we're going to have one title or another. (laughs) Reverend Kusala is an American-born monk ordained in the Zen tradition of Vietnam and is the head monk at the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the Koreatown section of Los Angeles. He is and has been a past member of several interfaith organizations dedicated to promoting harmonious dialogue and a deeper understanding between other faith traditions. On his website, www.kusala.info, you can find links to his podcasts, YouTube videos, and Facebook page. Please join me in welcoming today's speaker, Reverend Kusala Bhikshu. Good to be here today. That musical reference was when I had a motorcycle and used to ride that as my only form of transportation. But then I got old. (laughs) Now I've got a car. I'm going to talk about something that can be used in our meditation practice, but also in our spiritual journey to goodness. And last time I spoke, I talked about how to create a practice Towards going towards spiritual goodness. And this time it's what are the bumps in the road? What are the hindrances? What makes it difficult to have a spiritual journey or simply to sit down and meditate? Now, meditation is the cultivation of mind. And in Buddhism, we have quite a few ways to meditate. But I'll just sort of paint this picture for you. You've gone to the Zendo, which is a meditation hall, and you've taken your place on a cushion, and your object of meditation will be the sensation of breath. And you bring your attention to the sensation of breath, and it goes out, and it comes in, and it goes out, and it comes in. And you sort of settle into this rhythm, and then a hindrance arises. And this is called sense door desire. There you are, just minding your own business, and sense door desire tells you that after meditation, wouldn't an in and out burger taste wonderful? So now you go back to your object of meditation, and you don't pay too much attention. But then, and a chocolate shake. (laughs) Man. So we have this desire coming from our sense doors. We have taste and touch and smell and hearing and seeing and thinking. And I can remember when I first started meditating, I would literally drive down to the center where I now live and meditate. And then after I got out and in my car, 
I would drive to Rhino Records in Westwood because I knew they had a used section of blues CDs that were incredible. And during my meditation practice, I had thought and actually seen what I wanted to buy. As it turns out, my meditation practice became very expensive. <laughs> but I became aware of this sensador desire as attachment, as wanting something, to hold on to something, to own something, to be something. And then I had to sort of fight that off. How do you, how do you counter that desire? Well, there are a few things. Number one, everything changes all the time. So that desire for that In-N-Out burger would later become a taco, maybe a fajita, something else, because we're never satisfied. It continues to reach out and all those attachments. So I thought to myself, you know, one day I'll be dead. Why would I want a CD anyway? And that sort of countered the desire to own that blues CD. I remember having a 1975 Opel Manta. It was the first new car that I ever bought. $3,700 out the door. I made payments. It had a CD player in the dashboard, audio cassette player in the dashboard. I'm going, man, how lucky am I? About two months after I bought the car, somebody broke the window and took the audio cassette player. Was I bummed out and angry as well? And I yelled at my car, who owns you, car? Who's making the payments? Aren't you my car? And I listened carefully, and all I heard was silence. I thought to myself, maybe I didn't own this car, even though I had a receipt. Maybe I'm just using this car until it breaks down, Somebody takes it, or I buy another one. Maybe that attachment is just so delusional that I need to reflect on ownership and attachment and desire. Okay. The second hindrance, anger, ill will. Man. This is tough, because it's so easy to get angry these days. You've seen the brand new $500 million bridge, and you've seen what they're doing to it. And don't you just get a little angry going, why, why? That's $500 million, man. We could have spent that on something else. And you're not caring for it. Wow. Or there may be some people in your life that you're not too fond of. And and you wish they weren't there, 
but there's nothing you can do about it. And you have this little sense of anger or repulsion or, gosh, I wish I could just go someplace else. But you never seem to be able to do that. How do you, how do you counter that? Well, as it happened earlier and before I came up, one of the good ways to do it is loving kindness. Can you love your enemy or the people you hate or the people you don't like or the people you don't know? When I started doing loving kindness meditation, that just tripped me out. May all the people I don't know be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to them. May no difficulties come to them. May no problems come to them. May they always find fulfillment. All the people I don't know. I thought to myself, man, there are seven billion people. How many don't I know? Most of them. When I came in today, Andy says, I think you know, blah, 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 Jamie. I said, no, sorry, I don't. He says, I thought you did. I said, well, it's hard to know everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So can we love all those people we don't know, all those people we don't like? Can we love our friends and our relatives and our pets Can we love all of these people? Now, when I say the word love, I got to be specific because Buddhism really doesn't have the word love. And it's so depressing for people to find out that Buddhists don't love. Well, you know what we do instead of loving? We're kind. We try to be kind. That's all. You know, you just said Ernest Holmes talked about intention. I heard that. And going, okay, our intention is loving kindness. But we have love connected to kindness. And if you don't have kindness, you don't have love. I don't care what you think. You don't have it. So we have this love and we have this kindness. And kindness really doesn't do much except for you. Because kindness needs to be turned into an activity. You can't just be kind in your head, you know? So I call the activity of kindness compassion. Compassion changes the world. Kindness changes you. Okay. Third, third hindrance. There you're just sitting there meditating. You've been through the first two already. You go, okay. Now what's going to happen? Well... We have something called laziness, sloth. You know, you're just sort of tired about the whole thing. I don't know if I can meditate for 20 minutes tonight. I'm just too tired. I just want to go to sleep. I just want to watch TV. No, 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 you can't. You got 20 minutes to go. You can do it, man. You can do it. You can meditate. Come on. Oh, but I feel so heavy. It just weighs me down to feel like this. So what do you do? Well, you know, it happened to me a lot because I'm basically a lazy guy. And so I would sit there, and you know what I would do? I'd open my eyes. And when I opened my eyes, I saw the light in the room, and that light stimulated my brain, and I was less tired and less lethargic. 
Okay. But if it was really like I'm on retreat, and it's a weekend retreat, and we're meditating 10 hours a day, even opening your eyes sometimes wouldn't bring back the energy. So I would get up and literally walk, walking meditation, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And that physical movement was the energy I needed to get rid of my laziness and my lethargy. Okay. Now we have, now we have worry and agitation, which is just the opposite of being lazy. I can't meditate today. I have too much to worry about. Man, look at all the stuff that's going on in the world and in my life, and I don't know. How can I possibly just sit down for 20 minutes? I got stuff to do. I got to change something. There you are, man, just got this agitation you got all this energy, and there's no place to take it. So what did I used to do? What I used to do is I used to come to the present moment experience of my life. Because all this worry was happening either in the past or the future, but it wasn't happening now because I'm just sitting here doing nothing except watching my breath. So why should I be so agitated and worried about everything? I need to come to the present moment. Sometimes I'd extend my arm and I'd pinch myself. Not hard, but just enough so I could notice it. And I realized that that sensation of the pinch was happening right now. Had nothing to do with the future, had nothing to do with the past like those thoughts, that worry that I have. And sometimes I would just reestablish my connection to my breath, the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in, and it always did it right now. That sensation was always right now. So all that stuff, junk, all that worry, I realize that's just my mind. That's my monkey mind thinking about stuff. It never shuts up, but maybe I don't have to pay quite as much attention to all that stuff because I don't really have to worry about all that right now. I can worry on the way to Rhino Records. That's what I'll do. <laughs> so it's interesting when you sit down and meditate and you have nothing to distract you except the five hindrances, that you just go, wow, okay. Man, why wasn't I aware of all this stuff before? Because you were distracted. You were too busy to think about this. It didn't catch your attention. You had much bigger things to do. Okay, and now you just had this little thing to do. Simply sitting, breath going out, breath coming in. It's like a little mini vacation. Breath going on, breath coming in. And, and now the fifth one, the fifth hindrance. Skeptical doubt. Oh man, this one gets everybody. Is this really going to make my life better sitting here watching my breath? Was it really a Buddha? Did he really exist? Or is he a figment of all those imaginations 2,500 years ago? Wow. It is tough 
to get rid of skeptical doubt. Because there's a lot of conspiracy theories about everything that just reinforce your skeptical doubt. So this may sound a bit odd coming from a Buddhist, but one of the ways to deal with skeptical doubt is faith. Faith. Faith is something you really don't need any kind of validation for. I believe this to be true. Okay, fine. I know you don't believe it to be true, but I think it's true. Okay, fine. And why do you think it's true? Because I have faith. Okay, good. That's the first step to deal with skeptical doubt is faith. What's the second step? The second step is confidence. That you have proven it to be true. It has self-validated for you. You know beyond any reasonable doubt that what you had faith in before, you now have confidence in. And it will change your practice and change the way you relate to the world. You stand up a little bit straighter, your voice is a little clearer because you have confidence in what you're doing and why you're doing it. And now and then you run into other people with the same confidence in what they're doing, and it may not be what you're doing, but they may have gone through that faith to confidence and it's working for them now too. So here you are sitting on the floor, minding your own business. And now we have sense door desire, anger, hatred, lethargy, laziness, agitation and worry. Wow, and skeptical doubt. Not only are those things in your meditation practice, but those things can be found in your spiritual journey to goodness as well. And some of the ways to deal with them work well either way, whether it be meditation or your spiritual journey. And the secret is to become aware of them, not to run away from them, not to hide your head in the sand, but to simply be aware of it arising, existing, and passing away. And because all things are impermanent and nothing lasts forever and everything is in a constant state of change, those five hindrances don't last forever either. Something else will take their place. And your job as a meditator or a spiritual seeker is to recognize that that is the case, that you have an antidote that will work now until it finally goes away. Okay, now I want to share something, a personal insight that I had when I thought back to my, my days at military high school. I was one of those guys. They wanted to make a man out of me, because I was sort of a jerk. And, you know, when you're young and a teenager and don't like school and don't like much of anything, and it's the 1960s, yeah, yeah, there you go. So I was on the, the, the track team, and I was a shot putter. 
And I was a skinny shot putter, but I had some strengths. And I can remember we were having a meet with one of the other high schools, and I was going to prove to everybody watching me that I was the best. And they had all these thoughts arising, just coming up saying, you know, all you got to do is, and you can do it, and all you have to, and you know, and I'm going, okay, I can do this. And everybody will be so impressed. And I did it, and I failed miserably because I was thinking about it. And thinking, in that case, didn't translate into performance. So years and years later, I figured something out. It's called waiting. Waiting for the right moment to act. So I practice this with the cats that I feed every day. And I'm sitting in a chair. Actually, it's a rocking chair. It's so much fun to be old. And I'm watching the cats eat. And I just fed them. And now it's time to maybe change the water or get a little more food. And I have this intention, and it rises. Say, okay, get up. And I don't. I don't get up. I just sit there. I wait for that thought to go away. The thought, get up, to go away. And then I get up. And there's no resistance. There's no perfect way to get up. There's no concept of getting up. You just get up. Okay, cool. What did I learn from that? I learned that every intention we have is always momentary. It's just that little intention to start something, start some chain of events. And if you don't buy into it, if that intention doesn't have to be you, what you start to see is you have the opportunity of personal freedom. Because that intention is talking to Kusla. But is it really a Kusla? Well, I hate to break it this way, but there isn't. Kusla doesn't exist in any real way. Kusla exists because he was ordained. But does Kusla have a driver's license? No, he doesn't. Carl has a driver's license. And Carl pays car insurance. And Carl does registration. And then Carl drives Kusla to the event. And Carl stays in the car as Kusla walks through the front door. And everybody goes, oh, it's Kusla. Well, yes, it is Kusla, because Carl's in the car. <laughs> so when you get to that place in your practice where you don't have to be who you think you are or who they think you are, there is a wonderful place of freedom that arises. And you know what that means? That means you can be anybody you want to be. Anybody you need to be. Anybody you'd like to be. I was a volunteer for 20 years. Police department for seven years. I'd walk in, Kusla, the police chaplain. Yes, I'm here. Okay, what does that mean? 
That means that there was this guy who called himself Kusla who now became a police chaplain, and now they looked at him in another way, and another way, and another way. Which one is the real Kusla? Would he please stand up? No, there wasn't any real Kusla. Kusla was a process. Kusla as community service was a process. And he was part of the process that allowed suffering to be diminished. Happiness and joy to arise. That's why Kusla was doing all this sort of stuff. So people would feel better about themselves and about the world around them. So, meditation, don't get too trapped in those five hindrances. You'll be okay because everything changes and you're not really who you think you are. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your time.